ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to the Fresh Frozen Southerner podcast. My name is Jay. I hope all is well. I apologize for getting this episode out a week late. Uh, things are getting a little hectic with the move, but the good news is things are starting to come together. Uh, we have located a campground we're actually going to live in our motorhome for a couple of weeks, uh, maybe even a, up to a month. Uh, but we have to be out of the house by May 31st, and this will give us time to let my son get through his junior year in high school. And then we're going to figure out where we're going from there. But at least we have some place to go. Uh, that's that's a big part of the equation. And it buys us a little time. We can figure out where our plans are going to lead us. Of course, plans usually don't lead you where you think they're going to. But like I say, I'm kind of looking at this as an adventure. Actually kind of looking forward to staying at the campground for a while. They have fishing ponds, hiking trails. It'd be a nice little diversion. It'll almost feel like a vacation, even though my wife... We'll still be going to work. My son's still going to school. It's going to be a very odd vacation, but it is going to feel a little bit like a vacation nonetheless. I cannot tell you how much I'm looking forward to lighting a campfire and roasting hot dogs. Those are the best freaking hot dogs, and it has been too long since I've got to enjoy one. So it's going to be kind of kind of a nice change, and like I say, change is always a good thing. It's not always good right away. But change always is a good thing in the long run. You'll learn things, you'll pick up new skills, you'll grow as a person. It sounds corny to say it's character building, but that's exactly what it is. And I definitely have some new life experiences coming my way. And it looks like I'm going to have a de facto van life podcast here in a few weeks because I will be recording out of the camper. All right, guys, before we jump into the subject, uh, just real quick, I want to apologize. I'm not sure how much of the background noise is going to come through on the recording, but it has finally warmed up enough that we started putting the window units back into the windows, and I can hear a ton of street noise. Again, I don't know if it's going to come through on the recording, but it's that's good news as well because that means the weather is finally broken, and very few houses up here have central air just because there's really no point in them. I mean, you only would need air conditioning three months of the year, and most people just don't fool with them. It's weird seeing these these very nice modern houses with window units sticking out all over the place, but but that's the way they build them up here, so people have to make do with what they can. But what I want to talk about today is one of the founding fathers. Now, most of the founding fathers we learn about in school, we know their story, you know, George Washington, Benjamin Franklin, Jefferson, Hamilton, Sam Adams, of course, most people only know Sam Adams because of the beer company, uh, which coincidentally is not the same company that he, which he never really founded a company. He was a brewer, but, but no, that's just somebody managed to get the rights to his recipes and named the company Sam Adams. That is the only relation between the founding father and that company. I'm not a huge fan of the Sam Adams beer, by the way. I don't have a problem with it. I just don't think it's that great and it's way too overpriced. But let me get back to the subject at hand. Uh, the point I'm trying to make is most of the founding fathers we're very familiar with. You know, a lot of that's myth and legends. When you dig into it, a lot of the stuff that we quote unquote learned in school turns out to not necessarily be true. But we learn a lot about the founding fathers and we know their stories. Uh, this particular individual, you know, I remember hearing his name in school. I don't remember learning anything about him. You never hear him mentioned when we talk about the founders, and that is Thomas Paine. Now, Thomas Paine wrote Common Sense. Uh, Common Sense is brought up a lot if you're talking about the founding and the revolution, but we never really learned much about Thomas Paine, and 
common sense was so influential in galvanizing the colonists to go to war with England that a lot of historians have argued that Thomas Paine should deserve the title of the father of the revolution. But he just, in my opinion, he never gets his due just considering the influence that he had on that time period. So I thought we'd take a little bit of a dive into the life of Thomas Paine. Again, I knew nothing about the man except that he was the author of Common Sense. Uh, And he actually, like a lot of these people, he lived a very interesting life. It's a good story that I feel like should be told, which is why we're here today. Uh, But Thomas Paine was born on January 29th, 1736. Now, you always see his name spelled with an E at the end. Uh, Like most people that Paine, you you see their names written. It's P-A-I-N-E. But his actual name was just P-A-I-N. Uh, at some point, he added the E. Now, I saw a lot of a lot of people claiming that he changed it when he moved to America, but there's documentation that he was signing his name with an E well before that, which I can understand. You don't, you know, if your name was Agony and you could add an E to it and it turn it into just a totally normal name, I don't see why anybody wouldn't do that. Uh, but he was born on January 29th, 1736, in Thetford, England. And that actually kind of surprised me, but after I thought about it for a little while, it, it made more sense, and I should have assumed it. You know, most people in the colonies at this time were not born in the colonies. I'm sure some were, but most of the people were immigrating to the colonies. So it caught me off guard that he's an Englishman, uh, but really it shouldn't have. It's just one of my own personal prejudices that came from nowhere. I don't. I just assumed that the founding fathers were all born here, but probably a lot of them were not. Uh, But his father was a tenant farmer and a staymaker, and I had to look up staymaker. That is an old world name for a tailor that specifically makes women's corsets. And I think maybe saying women's corsets, not PC anymore, I may have just committed a hate crime. I'll look into that. But Thomas Paine attended school until he was 13, which school was not compulsory at this point in England. And it was kind of unusual for a farmer's son to go to school, but uh, Thomas Paine did attend grammar school, and he did very well in school. At age 13, Thomas Paine left school, and he apprenticed with his father as a staymaker. Now, he worked as an apprentice for his father until the age of 19, where he enlisted and served for about three years as a privateer. Now, if you're not familiar with privateers, privateers basically were private ship owners. They were not part of the normal military or the Navy, but it was private boats that whatever country you were at war with, like England was oftentimes at war with France, uh, they would send private boat owners out to try to find and capture French merchant ships. It was done to disrupt supply lines and to bring some money into the government uh, because you know they would uh, capture the crew, they would ransom them back to their families Whatever goods were on the ship were sold. A lot of times the ship itself would be sold. And then the money was split up between the owner of the boat, the crew, and the government, in this case, England. And if you're thinking that sounds like pirates, that's basically what it was. It was pirates with permission. You were operating under a contract with the king of England to seek out merchant ships from whoever you were at war with. But Thomas Paine served aboard this ship for about three years. Uh, In 1759, he returned to Britain, and he became a master staymaker. Now, I don't know how you become a master staymaker. Do you have to make a master's piece and present it to the governing council of staymakers? You know, a lot of times we'll say masterpiece now, and we're talking about just a 
just a brilliant example of whatever craft, you know, a painting, a, a book, a movie. But back in the day, a master's piece was a very specific thing. You produced a piece of whatever craft you are, whether you're a blacksmith or a stonemason or an armorer, and it was done specifically to show that you had reached expert level in that craft. And when you made that, it was called your master's piece. It was what you were doing to attain the rank of master in your craft. I feel like I'm getting pulled off track a lot in this episode, but but Thomas Paine opened a staymaker shop, and he married. And after about a year, his business failed, and shortly thereafter, his wife went into early labor, and the child and his first wife passed away. And if you need any proof of what an imperative the sex drive is in humans, for a lot of our history, a lot of women died in childbirth. You Obviously not like half because we wouldn't be here if that was the case, but a lot of women did die in childbirth. And can you imagine trying to talk your wife into sex when you're partially saying, you know, what we're getting ready to do might legitimately kill you. It just seems like that'd be a tough sale. You know, if there was a, a one in five chance that any time I got on my motorcycle, I was going to die, I probably wouldn't ride motorcycles. Now, after the death of his wife and the collapse of his business, Thomas Paine entered into public service, and he bounced around a lot. It does not seem like he was very conscientious about his job duties. Uh, part of the reason that he got bounced around a lot is he was asked to leave several posts, and he worked jobs uh, like clerks for a city, a tax collector, things like that. Uh, but in 1768, he was appointed to a job in Sussex. Now, this town had a strong tradition of opposition to the monarchy, and it was a very pro-Republican uh, ever since the revolutionary decades of the 17th century. And a lot of historians believe that this is kind of where he started to develop his, his political leanings and got into political activism. He served on the town council in Sussex. This was the first instance of him being directly involved in politics. In 1772, he was part of a group of excise officers that were asking Parliament for better working conditions and better pay. And part of his duties here was he wrote a book, uh, not a book, a pamphlet. It was called The Case of the Officers of Excise. It was a 12-page article, and it's the first political work he ever published. This foray into politics only lasted about a year, though, because he was, in 1774, he was once again let go of his job because of dereliction of duty. Uh, he actually had to sell all of his possessions to pay off debts. You remember this time in England, if you had debts and you didn't pay them, you would actually go to prison. So he was trying to avoid going to debtor's prison. And once he had sold everything and got out of debt, he moved to London. Now, it was while he was in London uh, that... A fellow commissioner in the excise office, a man named George Lewis Scott, introduced him to Benjamin Franklin. Now, Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Paine hit it off. Benjamin Franklin started pressuring him to immigrate to the American colonies. He actually gave him a letter of recommendation to help ease his immigration. And in the end of 1774, Thomas Paine immigrated to America and he went to Philadelphia. And actually, he barely survived the boat ride over. Uh, apparently, the boat had some tainted water. Uh, a few passengers died. Thomas Paine was so sick when the boat arrived in Philadelphia, he had to be carried off the boat. He could not physically stand up and walk off of the boat. He was so sick that it took him almost six weeks to recover. But once he was back on his feet, he became a citizen of Pennsylvania. He took the oath of allegiance. 
1775, he landed a job as the editor of the Pennsylvania Magazine that was based in Philadelphia. Now, he had bounced around jobs all, you know, all through his life. He had never been very good at anything. Thomas Paine had a gift for running a magazine and publishing articles. At this time in the colonies, there were about 16 magazines published. Uh, very shortly after Thomas Paine took over the Philadelphia, or I'm sorry, the Pennsylvania magazine, it became the most widely circulated publication in the American colonies. One of the things that Payne brought to this magazine was the Pennsylvania Magazine was conceived to be non-political, uh, but Thomas Payne brought a lot of his own political experience and his political leanings into the magazine. Uh, one of the things he wrote was, Every heart and hand seems to be engaged in the interesting struggle for American liberty. He is also quoted as saying that the publication should become a nursery for genius for a nation that had now outgrown the state of infancy exercising and educating American minds and shaping American morality. And just to counter the argument that all the founders were just rich, slave-owning white men, uh, the Pennsylvania Magazine also published a lot of abolitionist essays. Now, several of these were unsigned. They were anonymous. Uh, historians believe that Thomas Paine wrote one, if not most, of those essays. And there is some precedence for this, because when Thomas Paine published Common Sense in January of 1776, it was signed simply by an Englishman. So he had a history of putting this stuff out anonymously. Uh, his title for Common Sense originally was going to be Plain Truth. Fellow founder Benjamin Rush recommended the title Common Sense to him, and he changed it. Now, Common Sense was an immediate success. Uh, it sold about 500,000 copies through the course of the Revolution, now, by today's standards, that does not sound all that great. Uh, you have to remember, at this time in the American colonies, there were only about 2 million people, and a good portion of those were illiterate. A lot of these copies that were being purchased, uh, they would go to the taverns and alehouses, and they would do readings of this pamphlet for the people that could not read it themselves. So most of the revolutionaries were exposed to this work through the course of the revolution. And if you adjust for the population, that would be the equivalent of a book today selling about 85 million copies. To this day, it is proportionally the best-selling American publication in the history of the country. One of the things that Common Sense was able to do was at this period in the American Revolution, of course, the revolution hadn't quite started yet, but most of the ire was not directed at King George or Parliament. Uh, most of the people were angry with the government officials that were stationed in the colonies, but they didn't really blame Parliament and they didn't really blame the king himself. Common sense really galvanized the American consciousness as that King George was the, the original cause of a lot of these issues, and it really turned people's attention directly toward the monarchy where it wasn't really wasn't really directed at him originally. Thomas Paine also published a series of pamphlets uh, throughout the revolution, uh, the first coming out in late of 1776. These were titled The American Crisis. Now, I was not familiar with these, uh, but they have an excerpt here. General George Washington read this to his soldiers to inspire them. And the first line I've heard, and I'd say a lot of you have, but I was not familiar with these particular works, uh, but the excerpt is this. These are the times that try men's souls. The summer soldier and the sunshine patriot will, in this crisis, shrink from the service of their country. 
but he that stands it now deserves the love and thanks of man and woman. Tyranny, like hell, is not easily conquered. Yet we have this consolation with us, that the harder the conflict, the more glorious the triumph. What we obtain too cheap, we esteem too lightly. It is dearness only that gives everything its value. Heaven knows how to put proper price upon its goods, and it would be strange indeed if so celestial an article as freedom should not be highly rated. It is also rumored that Thomas Paine had a hand in helping to draft the Declaration of Independence, although that's never been proven. A lot of historians believe some of the wording and the style seem to fit Thomas Paine, so they think he may have helped Thomas Jefferson write the Declaration of Independence. Again, that's a rumor. It's never been proven, but take that for what you will. Now, in 1777, Paine became the secretary of the Congressional Committee on Foreign Affairs. Now, it seems like he was able to begin secret negotiations with France. It looks like he had a hand in helping bring France in to the war on our side against England. Of course, England and France have been fighting forever. I don't feel like it would take a lot of arm twisting to get France to, to fight against England. It's like a hobby for them. And through the war, Thomas Paine also served as an aide-de-camp to the General Nathaniel Green. Now, once the Revolutionary War ended, Thomas Paine did not stay in America for very long, partially because he had traveled to France quite a bit during his work with the Commission for the Foreign Affairs, uh, but also he had made some pretty powerful enemies. Once the war was over, Britain held a lot of territory that was to the west of the 13 colonies. Now, Thomas Paine argued that since they had defeated the British, that land should rightfully belong to the people. Basically, the government should take control of that land. Now, the original Virginia Charter back in 1609 had said that Virginia was to extend all the way to the Pacific. Any lands you know, from the coast all the way out to the next ocean was part of the original Virginia Charter. Now, a lot of wealthy Virginia landowners had used that charter as a basis for them going out and surveying land west of the 13 colonies and laying claim to it. Uh, one of these individuals was George Washington. Thomas Paine just railed against this. He saw it as just, you know, wealthy landowners snatching up land that should not be theirs for the taking. So he really made some powerful enemies. And I believe that's a big part of the reason that he did leave America. Uh, but he spent some time in France and then he traveled back to England. And in 1787, Paine became engrossed in the French Revolution that it, that was going to begin very soon. Uh, he traveled to France in 1790, and because of the work that he had done through the war and the contacts that he had in Paris, he was awarded a sort of honorary French citizenship. Now, he was very quickly elected to the French National Convention, uh, think of the House of Representatives here in America, and he was part of a group called the Girondins, I'm probably not pronouncing that correctly, uh, but they were pro-revolutionary, but they were very moderate in their beliefs. Uh, for example, Thomas Paine, after the Revolution, did not believe that they should execute Louis XIV. That was just something he did not think was a good idea. Of course, this put him in direct opposition with the Montagnards. And again, I'm probably mispronouncing that incorrectly. Um, Robespierre was a, a member of the Montagnards. Now, they were the group that just wanted to lay waste uh, the whole system. Now, Robespierre actually managed, once the revolution had, had kicked off, uh, the Montagnards actually rounded up most of the Girondins and had them put to death. Uh, Thomas Paine obviously was not part of that group. He somehow was 
able to, he either escaped or he was out of France before this happened. Uh, but that is the incident that kicked off what is termed as the, the Great Terror. Oh, I'm sorry, the uh, the Reign of Terror, not the Great Terror. Now, during his time in France and leading up to the French Revolution, because of all of his writings that he was putting out that was very anti-monarch, uh, very pro-rights of the citizens, uh, the leader of England at that time, William Pitt the Younger, actually charged Thomas Paine with sedition. Uh, he was charged in abstentia because he was in France, obviously. Uh, he was actually convicted. Now, Thomas Paine never served time in England because he was in Paris, uh, although he did get arrested in December 1793 by Robespierre and the Montagards. Uh, he was taken to Luxembourg Prison in Paris, and he served about a year there. Now, while he was in prison, he continued to write. Uh, he was putting out The Age of Reason. And in November of 19 or 1794, uh, James Monroe, that would go on to become president, uh, used his diplomatic connections and got Payne released from Luxembourg prison. And once Thomas Payne was out of prison, he traveled back and forth uh, between America and some other countries. He traveled a lot through his life. He lived in a home in Bordentown, New Jersey, uh, which Kind of interestingly, that is the only piece of property he ever purchased through his entire life. Everywhere else he'd ever stayed was he either stayed with uh, business associates or friends or rented an apartment. Uh, the house in New Jersey is the only home he ever purchased in his entire life. Now, he continued to write through this time. Uh, he had made a lot of enemies by this point. Uh, of course, we went over George Washington, uh, but he had attacked most people in the government um, he also wrote a lot about organized religion, uh, Christianity, Christianity in particular. Uh, he had made a lot of enemies with the Christian community. And he, just by the end of his life, he had somehow managed to piss off pretty much everybody he had ever met. Uh, he died on June the 8th, 1809, and only six people attended his funeral. Now, normally, somebody's death is the end of their story. Uh, but there's some odd things past his death that have to do with Thomas Paine. Uh, now, number one, he died in New York at 59 Grove Street in Greenwich Village. The original building has been torn down, uh, but the building that sits on that site, there's actually a plaque saying that uh, that's the location where Thomas Paine passed away. But after Thomas Paine's death, his body was taken to New Rochelle, and in his will, he had wanted to be buried in a specific graveyard. Uh, the, this was a Quaker graveyard. And again, I said that he had attacked the Christian religion pretty regularly, and the Quakers would not allow his body to be buried in their cemetery. So his body was taken to his farm and buried under a walnut tree. But in 1819, a radical journalist from England named William Cobbett had his body exhumed, and the intent was that he was going to take his remains back to England uh, so he could be buried on his native soil and given the honors that Mr. Cobbett felt that he deserved. We don't know what happened or why, but when Mr. Cobbett died 15 years later, he still had Thomas Paine's remains in his possession. He never reburied the body. And just to make things a little bit worse and to keep the insult to injury going, we have no documentation of what happened to his remains after Mr. Cobbett's death. And in fact, through the years, there have been a lot of people in England that have claimed that they own parts of Thomas Paine's remains. Um, there's been people that say they have his skull, they have his right hand, you know, they have his left kneecap. I, it's just such an inglorious end to somebody that had such an effect on this country's history. 
Now, the reason I'm bringing Thomas Paine up now is because I have purchased a copy of Common Sense, The Design and Origin of Government, and I'm going to read that. Now, it is a pamphlet. It's not a book. I think it's about 60 pages long total. There are some some four words, and I'm sure there's some some people bloviating about Thomas Paine through there, but it's a very short pamphlet, so I should be able to get through it pretty quickly. And I will do an episode, and we will go over sort of a book report on Common Sense. You know, I'd always heard about this. I'd never read it. I'm looking forward to diving into it. And, you know, the episodes that I did on Saul Alinsky and the Rules for Radicals were some of my most popular episodes. So, you know, we'll do that again because people seem to like it. And I just had a lot of fun doing that. Um, I've always been a big reader. I don't read a lot of nonfiction. So this was a good excuse for me to to dive into something. And I, I really enjoyed doing those. So uh, maybe not next episode, but definitely the episode after this, I will do a synopsis of Common Sense and give you my thoughts. Uh, but that's that's why I'm bringing up Thomas Paine today. All right, guys, that is about all I've got for you today. Uh, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Again, I'm sorry it's been a little, little late coming out. Uh, if you did enjoy the episode, please leave me a like and a comment, and you can uh, give me a subscription. That would always be super appreciated. You can leave a comment at freshfrozensoutherner at gmail.com or at the Fresh Frozen Southerner Facebook page. All right, guys. I hope everybody had a good weekend. I hope everybody had a good Mother's Day. I would like to tell my mom and Wanda and Stacy and Lori and Sheila and Sandy, everybody, happy Mother's Day. As always, I appreciate you sitting with me this long, and we will talk again very soon. Thank you very much. <music>